You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is Wesley. I'm one of the pastors here, and this is quite tempting to give me such a long passage to preach on today. So I'll try to try to keep it in our normal 35 minute range. Um, Thank you, Michael, for for reading that. It was very brave of you to take that many uh, many passages of scripture and read it for us today. Uh, We are in a study through the book of Acts called Gospel to the City, and we now find ourselves in Acts chapter five. And as we've noted over the past few weeks, the tides are beginning to turn a little bit in the early church. When we look at the first few chapters of Acts, things seem to be going peachy. Everything is great. Uh, There seems to be no conflict. There seems to be uh, nothing stirring up, no persecution, no trials. It just seems like the Lord is on the move. People are being added day day by day. This this congregation, this church is growing. They're unified. They're loving one another. And then all of a sudden, we begin to see the, the seeds of temptation, trials, and suffering coming to the church. And if you recall back in uh, chapter 4, that the apostles, uh, specifically uh, John and Peter, were called before this council that we're going to see again today. And the first time they're called to the council, they're just kind of threatened. Stop doing miracles in the name of Jesus. Stop talking about this guy, Jesus. And well, they don't stop. And the church continues to grow. Uh, And today we find ourselves in a similar situation, a similar passage. But the persecution, the trials are going to intensify from here on out for the church. And now, uh, this is going to seem like a weird transition, but is anyone ever taking uh, like online BuzzFeed quizzes before? All right, so most of you in the room know what I'm talking about. All right, uh, so I recently uh, started doing this a little bit. Um, I'm not really on social media, but every now and then I find my wife uh, flipping through these quizzes. And so recently I was like, I'll take one from the, the episode of the, or the Office, the show, right? It's one of my favorite shows. Like I love the show. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to take this quiz. going to tell me what character I am in the office. And I'm, I know I'm Jim. Like it's, it's obvious that I'm Jim, right? So I took the, <laughs> I took the quiz and instead I got Creed Brad. <laughs> um, So I just want to read you the description that it gave me for Creed Bratton. You have the ability to make even the most confident individual uncomfortable. We don't know if it's because of your inappropriate comments, your penetrating looks, or your particular personality. You have an aurora of mystery that makes people people intrigued that they are scared on one end, also wanting to get to know you. You have a way to always end up getting out of trouble, even ending up in jail or something. <laughs> that was the description it gave me of my character, Creed. Now, I, I say all that because those are fun things to do, but uh, there's something we love to do when we love a good show. We like to identify with the characters of that show. Uh, we like to, to draw ourselves into the story, and whether it's Creed Bratton or whether it's Jim Halpert, we like to, to find ourselves in the story because it has more value, it has more meaning to us when we're able to draw ourselves into the plot on a deeper level. And this morning, as we look at this text, we're really going to see kind of a plot movement of two characters. It's not two individualistic characters, it's two characters as defined by groups. You'll see one group that is is defined as the early church, the early Christians, or the apostles. And then you'll see this other character group that's going to be defined by the religious council, where we see the high priest and the Sanhedrin. And you're going to find in the story today that these two groups are at contrast with one another. They don't mix. They don't cross. They're completely different characters on completely different tracks. On one end, you're going to find that the early church is characterized by their courageous living, 
their joy, their active faith. They're spiritually motivated, and they're going to find themselves in a bit of trouble today. And unlike our friend Creed Bratton, they won't be able to get out of jail uh, unless by a miracle of God. And then we're going to find on the other end these religious leaders who will be characterized by politics, fear, anger, passivity, and at the end, opposing God. And what I hope today this text will do is kind of one of those silly BuzzFeed quizzes. It will allow us to assess where do we find our identity in the story today? Where do we find our identity and how can we, how can we land with this early Christian group? How can we find ourselves persevering in such a courageous way as we see in this text? You see, from this moment on for about the, the next uh, two centuries, uh, the church is going to endure lots of persecution. Uh, from this moment on, you're going to see it intensify. There's going to be about 10 different trials or systemic trials of persecution in the Roman Empire in those three centuries. Uh, about 100 years of that time frame, it's going to be legal for people to be Christians in the Roman Empire. You're going to see people murdered, martyred for their faith, killed, tortured, and plundered and imprisoned. Tertullian, one of the early uh, church fathers, he said it this way in a Latin phrase describing the early church movement. Semen es sanguis Christianorium, which I know many of you took Latin, so you know exactly what I mean there. It means this, the blood of Christians is seed. In other words, the early church, as we continue to move through the book of Acts, will see this progression that the more that they're persecuted, the more they grow. The more that they face opposition, the more they live through those trials with courage and with faith and boldness. And so today in our text, we're just to try to capture one main idea in this really lengthy text today is this, that the Christian life is one marked by courage. It is one identified and marked by courage. And so today I want us to look at this text. We're going to see, uh, kind of in our outline today, which will be on the screen, you'll see three different effects of this courage, that as we live courageously, there's three things that happen in this text. And then we're also going to look at each one of these sections and try to identify what is courage, how do we get it, and how do we live this out? What does, it, what does it look like to be cur- courageous in our faith? So here are our points. Courageous faith enriches the lives of others. We'll see that in the first section. Then we'll see courageous faith enrages the prideful in the second lengthy section. And then finally at the end, we'll see that courageous faith energizes the church. And so let's dive into the text. Courageous faith enriches the lives of others. Notice in verse 12, now many signs and wonders were regularly being done by the people, uh, by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, which kind of became like the meeting spot for the church and for ministry. And none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. We'll come back to verse 13 in a little while. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. So as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. People also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So here's what's going on. The apostles are living out their faith publicly. These these men who have been chosen by God are in Solomon's Porigo, and they're living out their faith publicly, and these signs and wonders are being done. And they're not just being done for the sake of an an attraction of signs and wonders. They're being done because they're giving giving, uh, verification to the message. They're giving authority to the message of Jesus Christ and what the apostles are proclaiming. And we see a few things that are happening here. This early church is displaying a deep love for people. Christian ministry is about helping others, right? And that's what we see here. They have this deep love and affection for people. 
that not only were they embracing people, but the Lord was adding people to the church. And I love the phrase here. It says that the people were being added to the Lord. They were being redeemed. Their lives were being changed. They were receiving salvation in Jesus. It's a beautiful picture and reminder for us that when we come to faith in Christ, we don't just get a little bit of him. He doesn't just give us enough. We are added to the Lord. We become a part of his family, a part of the body of Christ. We get all of him, his righteousness, his forgiveness, his life, his sacrifice, his resurrection, his love. He becomes the central story, the hero of our story, as our brother Bradshaw would say. And these men and women are being added to the Lord. And then we see other things happening, right? People are being healed. They're coming from all the little suburb towns of Jerusalem just to to try to touch Peter and be healed. Now, we believe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we believe here at King's Church that we recognize, although this was a unique time in the apostles' ministry, that God still heals people today. He is still in the business of healing people. And there are times where Jesus decides to intervene through our prayers to give a world a clear picture of what the kingdom of God is going to look like through miraculous healing that cannot be explained by any other means than that God did it. And we know for the Christian that this is a beautiful reminder and encouragement for us that healing will come to all of us. When we pray, our prayers will be answered. Sometimes those prayers are answered now. Sometimes they're answered soon. And sometimes they'll be answered at the resurrection when Jesus comes and makes all things new, including our bodies. And we also notice another thing that's happening here. Not only are they being healed of physical sickness, but they're also being delivered. They're being delivered from evil spirits. Now, we oftentimes don't like to talk about this in our culture. Uh, It sounds a little uh, folklore-y kind of to talk about uh, evil spirits, but the Bible is clear that there is not only God, but there is an adversary. His name is Satan. And he, along with other fallen angels, are rebelling against God. They are not equal to God. They do not rule over God. God rules over them. But it's a reminder that this world is spiritual. And that not all spirituality is good. Not all spirituality is godly. Not all spirituality is safe. And just like you wouldn't open up the door, well, I hope you wouldn't open up your door to just any random stranger at all times, it's a good lesson for us to look at this and remind ourselves we shouldn't open up our souls to anything spiritual just because it's spiritual. These people are dealing with real spiritual bondage. And the apostles are bringing deliverance in the one true God, the living God, Jesus Christ, the only one who can deliver us from such unclean spirits. And they're being indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and they're being delivered, and we see people receiving health, healing, salvation, and hope. Now, what does this really look like? What is happening here? How does this tie into this courageous faith? Well, I think what we're seeing here is an answer to our question of what does courage look like? You see, I think what's, what's, what this is revealing to us is actually what courage looks like. Look at verse 13. He says, none of the rest, so as they see the apostles working, it says, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. What an what a odd statement, right? As they're looking at the ministry of the apostles, these people are looking upon and they're saying, we're not going to join this, but we respect what's happening. Like, like this is incredible. There's dignity in what's happening in the early church. And what's this communicating to us? What's communicating that there's lines of delineation. There's lines of distinction that were clear in the early church. There were no people who had one foot in the community and one foot out. You were either identified in it, or you didn't want to be identified at all. 
This makes sense, right? Coming off of the passage last week that, that Ben did such a good job uh, unfolding for us of Ananias and Sapphira. And after that event that happened, it says that not only was the church in, in fear of what happened, but the city of Jerusalem, like a presence of fear has fallen on the city. And people are realizing those who claim to follow the way actually believe it to be true. They believe the exclusivity that Jesus is the only way. And to believe that brings courage to this early church. And what the, 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 the onlookers are seeing is they're saying, well, I don't know if we're willing to jump in on this, but we esteem what's happening because their actions are backed by their belief. That what they believe, they're putting into action. If I were to define courage, I think it would be this. It's living principally in all circumstances. It's voluntary in nature. It's not required. And these early believers, that's precisely what we see them doing. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They believe he is the way of salvation. They believe it to the core of their being, which has caused them to voluntarily give their lives over and to live principally in the face of all circumstances. And here, that is the motivating force for why they are standing on this portico, this porch at Solomon's temple, and they're proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And they're wanting to see people healed. And they're loving people as they should. They're faithful, loving community that courageously stepped in the gap of society to love others. Now, uh, I was thinking about an example of this, and I was thinking, the Google search engine, okay, I'm, I'm sounding like I just understood the internet yesterday for the first time, but uh, the Google search engine, right, it does this, this really cool thing. It has this algorithm, and you probably know what I'm talking about. When you type in words on Google, it begins to finish your sentence for you, right? It's pretty eerie, actually, uh, that it can do that, right? It uses an algorithm to try to figure out what are you trying to communicate, what are you trying to ask for. And so I did some practice on this. If you ask why something is so, it's interesting to see what comes up. So I was uh, just, just you know, asking random questions. So I said, why are actors so blank? And the first thing Google says was short. <laughs> the second thing was so weird. And the third thing was paid so much. Okay, that one made sense. Uh, then I said, why are cats so... I got the first answer was afraid of cucumbers. The second was scared of cucumbers. The third was afraid of water. And the fourth was tongues are rough. Okay, if you're a cat person, I just don't understand you. Like if that's what Google is saying about that animal, I just don't get it, right? I just don't get it. And then the third one I did was, was probably what you're expecting. Why are Christians so? And the first one was actually kind of funny. It says, why are Christian movies so bad? <laughs> that was the first one that came up. But the second one, the second one had a little deeper meaning. It said, why are Christians so mean? That's the first thing that Google pointed out. And it's a reminder for us, what is our reputation in this world? As King's Church, what do our neighbors think of us? How would they feel in the blank? What do our employers think of us? What would they say? Historically, Christians have been known, not perfectly, but have been known by their love by their love for others, by the way in which they courageously stepped in the gap to love when no one else would love. Sociologist Roddy Stark, he wrote this about the early church. He said, Christianity revitalized life in the Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with the many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with homeless and the impoverished, it was Christianity that offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, it was Christianity that offered the immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, it was Christianity that provided a new home and expanded sense of family. And to cities torn by violent ethnic strife, it was Christianity that offered a new basis for social 
solidarity. And to cities facing epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. It was the Christian faith that stood in the gap. We need courage in life, not just to do the remarkable things, but to live the life the way we should. It takes courage to be a good friend. It takes courage to be a good colleague. It takes courage to tell someone truth when no one else will. And so as we have opportunities like the early church to live principally in all circumstances at King's Church, we want to take opportunities to speak, to love, to minister to the poor, to the hurting, to the sick, to the concierge, the building that we live in, to the waitress at our favorite restaurant, to the coworker, to a friend, to our neighbor. We take those opportunities to minister to such groups. Now, on one side, we see in this passage that courage, uh, living courage and, and, and courageously will, will have people think well of us, but on the other end, it also will rage others. And that's what we see starting in verse 17. Courageous faith enrages the prideful. Let's pick up verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrest the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Let's stop right there. So you have uh, now the other, the other character development started. Well, we have the early church. They're, they're courageously living out their faith. We're seeing incredible things happen. People are being saved. People are being healed. Uh, unclean spirits are being cast out and people are being delivered from that. All this great stuff is happening. And you think, how could someone be against this? Right? How could someone come against all that? Like, who's the party of people that are pro-sickness and don't want people healed anymore, right? Like, who are the party, who, who are the party poopers who are saying, I'm pro-unclean spirits. Like, don't deliver anyone else. Uh, who are these people? And why are they coming against the disciples? Why are they coming against the apostles? Well, we're introduced to this group. They're the party of the Sadducees, the high priests and the Sadducees, which form this group called the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sadducees were, uh, were kind of uh, the progressive theologians of the day. We would say that. You have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were more traditionalist, more conservative in their, their theology, and then you have the Sadducees who were a little more progressive. And what I mean by that is they believed in things like the, the, that miracles don't exist. So guess what? The, the resurrection is pretty invalid for them, right? They don't believe in resurrection. I don't believe Christianity could be true because our, our, the foundation of our faith is built on the resurrection of Jesus. They also didn't believe in angels, which I think is really ironic that God sends an angel in this story to deliver the disciples, uh, for the apostles from prison, uh, because the Sadducees didn't believe in that. They didn't believe those things existed. And what really, when it comes down to it, what really is, is causing them to act in such a way that enrages them is jealousy. It says in verse 17 that they were filled with jealousy. They realized quickly that their power was being waned at the growth of this church. They realized quickly that the things that the apostles were doing could take away the authority that they had in this world. It attacked their very identity of who they were. And they were filled with jealousy. And they appropriately responded to that jealousy by saying, we have the authority to arrest them, let's do it. Let's throw them in public prison. But then the Lord came, and the angel of the Lord came, and and, uh, not only released them from prison, but spoke to them and commanded them and told them, hey, go back and do the exact same thing that got you in prison. (laughs) 
Don't you love that? The angel tells, tells him, go back into the exact same thing that just got you in prison. Go stand on the porch in the public square and begin to proclaim again this life. Begin to proclaim again the message of Christianity. That's precisely what they did. Now, there's a good lesson for us here. Maybe if you find yourself uh, incarcerated uh, in an unjust way, God may free you from that one day. When we face opposition, he might as well free us from those things, but he may not. The lesson for us is this, that God is always with us. He never left or forsake the apostles in this moment. He was always there with them. And we can take courage, just like they did, that God is for us and that the king of this world is in us and he is working through us. And so we then see that uh, chaos kind of ensues. The high priest comes. We pick up again in verse 21. And they're with him. They called together the council and all the sin of the people and sent them to the prison. But the officer came. Uh, And I feel bad for these officers in the book of Acts. We're going to see this time and time again. Uh, They did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked like it was supposed to. The guards standing at the doors. But when we opened, we found no one inside. The only explanation is a miracle that God miraculously freed them from prison. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. Someone came and told them, look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain of the officers went and brought them, not by force this time, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Now, here's what's happening. God is, is making a way for his word to continue to move forth through the apostles. He miraculously frees the apostles from prison. They go back in teaching, and now the council's confused, and they're wondering, what is our next step? So the next step is, we're going to do this a little bit more diplomatic. We're going to bring them in without force, and then we're going to talk to them again. And it continues verse 27. They brought them in. They sat them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have been filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intended to bring this man blood upon us. Notice how they can't even bring themselves to say Jesus' name. They say, no, it's, you're teaching in this name, in that man's blood. They're so hardened to it. Pride has, has so infused in their hearts, enraged them, that they can't even bring themselves to say the name of Jesus. And pride is precisely what keeps us from following him, is it not? Sometimes it's intellectual pride, just like these Sadducees. Maybe we struggle with believing that the gospel is just too foolish how can we believe in resurrection? Sometimes it's social pride, just like these Sadducees. We don't want to risk public alienation or loss of power for believing this message. Sometimes it's family pride. And if I believe, if I give my life to this, it could bring shame to my family. These Sadducees are, are so filled with jealousy and pride that they can't even see the good that is happening right before them. They can't even see the truth that is being proclaimed right to them. And so Peter and the apostles answered them, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now their response is is a mixture of both a little bit of civil disobedience here and gospel proclamation. There are at times when it is appropriate for the Christian to respond in such a manner. There are at times when if the state or a governing authority that we submit to is clearly going against the calling of a Christian, 
that we, like the apostles, will stand up and say we must obey God rather than men. But notice what they do right after that. They bring it right back to the gospel message. They take this opportunity before the Sanhedrin to proclaim Christ again. A call to repentance for Israel. But the Sadducees, they don't repent, do they? They're actually enraged more, and they want to kill them. And so then we get our, our, our friend uh, Gamaliel here, who's, who's a wonderful guy, and, and he actually has wisdom here. Uh, he has some, he's the only guy in the, in the council that has some common sense. And he brings it to the table. He says, guys, hold up. Before we kill these, these men, let's just, let's just see this play out, right? I mean, remember these other guys, they had a, he, he, he had a, a group of 400 people that he brought up, and that, that's, that didn't work. You remember Judas, right? Judas of Galilee? Yeah, that didn't really work either. You know, his movement squandered. And so if this is of man, yeah, it will go away. But if it's of God, we can't stop it anyways. And we might even find ourselves fighting against God. And so they end with releasing them after beating them. Now, the question for us here is simply this. Where did this courage come from? Because you might, you might look at this story and say, how could, how could that ever happen? Like, how could you stand against such odds and proclaim a sentence like, we must obey God rather than men? Where does that come from? Where does that courage come from? Well, it actually comes from the very next statement that they make. Look back at verse 20, uh, excuse me, verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on the tree. And notice how they describe Jesus. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now, we're going to do a little work here because the word Savior is one that we're, we're often familiar with. It comes from the Greek word sotir. It's something that uh, is commonly given to Jesus. He is our Savior. He brings salvation to us. He frees us from the bond of sin. We, we get that, right? But the other word here is a little tricky. Some of your translations may say prince. Some say leader. It's kind of a word that is odd. It's not used a lot in the New Testament. In fact, it's only used four times, all related to Jesus, twice in Hebrews and twice in Acts. It's the word archagos, which in its, its kind of most literal translation means captain. Jesus is our captain. And in the Hellenistic Greek culture that they're speaking to, that word really meant hero. It carried the idea of being a hero. One commentator, Will, William Lane, he said this, the hearers would have heard this in the Hellenistic world and know that this referred to legends like Hercules, who were called not only Soter saviors, but Archegos champions. And they would have immediately understood that Jesus is being presented as the protagonist, the hero of the story. These early Christians are deliberately using this word that would be associated with a hero like Hercules, like other heroes of the day, and they're applying it to Jesus Christ. It's not a great example of cultural engagement and how we can contextualize the gospel to engage with culture, but it's reminding us that the ambitions, the longings that we have in our lives for someone to be the hero, for someone to be the captain, for someone to, to be the one who champions for us is found in Jesus. Jesus, like heroes of the old, would brave death. He, like heroes of the old, would face danger principally. Voluntarily, as the Bible says, he would lay down his own life for his friends. But what separates Jesus? What separates him from any other hero narrative, any other courageous leader in this world? When we think about modern heroes or even uh, heroes of old, we think about power. Right? A hero becomes a hero when they have power. A superhero becomes a superhero when they have superpowers, right? 
I love the story of Spider-Man. Peter Parker, this little geeky kid from Queens, right? He's a nobody, and then he gets bit by a radioactive spider. If we were to tell that story in D.C., it'd probably be a radioactive rat, but uh, <laughs> he gets bit by this radioactive spider in, in Queens, and he now has a superpower, and he's a hero now because he's got this power. Hercules, when he gets his power, he's now a, a hero. But what's different about Jesus? Why? Where does this courage come from? It comes from Jesus because he was all power. He didn't have to get power. He was already all powerful. He had cosmic power. He created the heavens and the earth. How is he a hero? Because he would willingly lose his power. That's the difference. Jesus, the Archegos, the hero, the captain of our faith, he is the one, the source of our courage. Why? Because he is willing to lay his glory aside. He is willing to lay his invulnerability aside and become vulnerable for us. To lay his power aside, not to gain more, but to lay his power aside in order that we might be saved. He gave up all of his glory, all of his strength. It's the opposite of the way we sometimes see courageous leadership as powerful, but instead Jesus humbles himself. He takes our punishment on the cross. He gives up his glory. He gives up his everything. And that is precisely the courage we need to stand in opposition. The kind of courage that is available, not for strong people, but for those who are weak. You see, that's what's beautiful about the Christian faith is that we don't have to stand on our own two feet and muster for strength and say, we have courage. But it's precisely when we're weak. It's precisely when we feel like we are a failure. It's precisely when we feel like we don't have enough to give that Christ comes to us and says, I've already done it for you. Have courage. My strength is there for you. My grace is sufficient. I have died the death you deserved. I have made a way for you to live. Have courage through me. Jesus, the captain and savior, he is the one who gives us courage. And then finally we see that this courageous faith, it energizes the church. Look at verse 40. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So how did they respond after being beaten, after being threatened? First, they rejoiced. They rejoiced because they counted it worthy to suffer dishonor for whose name? For the name of Jesus. And second, they continued on. They didn't stop. They continued the same mission that they began in this passage. Now notice they didn't come out of, of uh, the this, this council and say, oh, what wonderful pain that was, right? They're not gluttons for punishment. They say, oh, what a wonderful name it is to suffer for Jesus. Now, our last question as we come to a close here. How do we get courage? We know it comes from Christ. He's our hero. We see it active in the way in which the apostles were living and teaching. How do we get this courage? I was reading an article recently that talked about one way to get courage, and that is through defiance. The article said defiance is looking at yourself and thinking about yourself. It means telling yourself you can do it. You got this. And then the, the website continues, how to overcome your fear. And it says, step four in dealing with your fear. Y'all ready? Step four, after you relax, visualize doing the behavior you fear successfully. Everybody done that before? 
See yourself doing the thing you fear. Imagine yourself in a situation without all those terrible and pleasant consequences you've been scaring yourself with and think will happen. Enjoy the feeling of mastery that comes with having dealt successfully with all situations that have made you fearful. Then you will become more confident and less fearful. In other words, what defiance says is look inwardly to yourself. Imagine the fears that would happen and banish those fears. Believe they don't exist. And if you do that over time, you'll actually become successful in conquering your fears. Now, that may be a good principle that works sometimes, but there's a problem with that. That fear is a reality. You can't banish reality. You can't live a delusional life without reality. And so to say that I can muster up enough strength to overcome my fear because it doesn't exist, what happens if it does exist? What happens if that worst fear does come upon you? What happens if you find yourself in prison like the apostles? What happens if you find yourself being threatened for your faith? How do you handle that? Well, there's another way. There's a better way. And that is through hope in Christ. See, hope in Christ says, look to Jesus. Look to him. How did he do it? How did he go about conquering fear? Well, he didn't banish it. He didn't say that it didn't exist. How did he go to the cross? If you look at the Garden of Gethsemane, you don't see Jesus saying, I can do this. I know I can. Right, come on, cup, give it to me. Right, can't wait to drink it. It's <laughs> not what he says, right? Jesus says, Father, if this cup can pass from you, let it pass. He is sweating blood. He is experiencing real fear. He is experiencing the reality of the cross. What did he do in that moment? We didn't tell himself, I can do this. He didn't imagine that the cross wasn't going to happen. He looked somewhere else for the source of strength. And Hebrews reminds us of this. If you go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says Jesus is the founder. There's that word again, founder. It's the captain hero, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. It was the joy that was set before him that allowed Jesus to endure the pain, that allowed Jesus to go even though he knew reality was going to set in, that the cross was going to happen, even though he would experience suffering for us. Now, what kind of joy are we referring to here? I mean, Jesus has been with God for all eternity. I'm sure he, he knows joy, right? What is the joy that was set before him? It's the joy of redeeming you. It's the joy of saving you. Going to the cross to make way for us to know God. That's the joy that was set before him. He thought of redeeming us, of saving us, of loving us. He wasn't looking to himself and saying, I can do that. He was looking for the joy that was set before him. And he endured the cross, despising its shame. It is now seated at the right hand of the Father. So how do we get this courage today? We look to Jesus. We fix our eyes on Christ. And when we do so, he will energize us. He will energize us. He will encourage us. He will bring joy into our lives. This reminds me of the Lord of the Rings book series, which is one of my favorite book series. In the last book, there's this little hobbit named Mary. And Mary's on this battlefield, one of the last scenes, and he is scared to death. His heart is failing him. He sees death and mayhem all around him, such horror that almost blinds him and sickens him. 
And then as he's on the ground in fear, he looks up. And he sees Erwin, a friend, a woman who is in battle. She is facing this towering evil figure. And he looks at her and her courage for him, her courage for her friends, and something happens in Mary's heart. Tolkien writes, he says, pity filled his heart in great wonder, and suddenly a slow-kindled courage of his race awoke. He clenched his fist in hand and moved. There it is. Mary didn't say, I can do it. I can go and smash the evil witch king. The bigger they are, the harder they fall, right? No, that's not what he said. He looked, he fixed his eyes on his friend and the courage of his friend and how his friend was fighting for him. Stir up in his heart a slow kindled courage to get up and follow. When we look to Jesus, even on the darkest days, when fear increases, we can fix our eyes on him. We can fix our eyes on Jesus, the arch ghost, the, the captain, the hero of our story, the finisher of our faith. We can look to him being courageous for us because he is for us. He went to the cross for us. He suffered for us. He endured pain for us. He took upon the punishment that was due us for us. And he was courageous to the point of death. We look to him. We fix our eyes on him today. We put our faith in him. And when we do so, we, like Mary, can find that slow kindled courage in our hearts to follow him. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.